Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode number 47. In this episode, I had the honor to chat with the senior designer at Zahadid Architects in London, Mariana Cabugueira. Mariana's journey was very interesting. She graduated at the University of Lisbon within between an exchange year at the Politecnico di Milano. And after a short professional experience in Portugal, she decided she needs to explore furthermore her design skills. And this is how she ended up at the AA School of Architecture in London, where she currently also teaches. The conversation was really inspiring and I'm sure it's going to be inspiring for you too. But before we start, I want to thank you for the support so far and remind you that if you like what we do, if you like our show and what um, we can bring to you as informations, you can support us completely for free by just joining our monthly newsletter with the best of our show. Um, the link is below. You just can click and subscribe. And also you can follow us on our social media channels, which are Instagram at TCI Podcast and the LinkedIn page, The Creative Insider. Thank you very much uh, and enjoy the conversation with Mariana Cabugueira. How are you doing? Hi, Georgi. You're good. I'm fine. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for accepting the invitation of our small but powerful podcast. Um, it was nice. It was nice to to find about you because uh, we have had on the podcast Vamsi, which is the um, co-founder of Futurely. And then recently I saw on their Instagram that you were doing a workshop with them and I got curious and I, and I checked you uh, on Instagram. And for me, it was uh, very interesting because um, I was recently reading the book, This is Marketing, of, um, of uh, uh, Seth Godin. And he says that you need to be polarizing to catch the attention of, of the people. And for me, the most polarizing thing was that I saw you are one of the head designer of Zaha Hadid Architects. But if you check your Instagram, it's like you're like a traveling blogger <laughs> or something like that. So that was really <laughs> A little bit. Come on. I liked it. You, uh, you don't no. look like the typical architect. Yeah, I, I mean, not polarizing, but definitely multitasking, especially I think this year, it was a very big lesson uh, towards that multitasking, not doing just office work and more than traveling, I do like, uh, I teach, I teach as much as I work for the office, I teach quite a lot. So it, I started to multitask this year, like so much and zero traveling, as you, as you can imagine. I think I traveled once or something. Uh, but yeah, definitely multitasking for my profession or whatever profession. I think it's really important, really important. Yeah, and kind of organize all these uh, different uh, different tasks you're you having on your plate. 
Um, I've I've also like then researched a little bit you. I checked other interviews you have done with Bless Bless Architecture, Bless Architect. I'm gonna put the link in the in the description of the podcast so that there is no like uh, uh, unhappy people afterwards. Um, and in your story, it's quite interesting. Uh, so, but I'm always curious to ask because you can introduce a little bit yourselves for the audience. So if they don't know you, and then I'm going to start with my questions. Okay. So Mariana, I am an architect, uh, from Lisbon. I graduated in Lisbon. Uh, I studied in Milano for one year as well. Then I took, I did my master's of architecture in Lisbon after that, um, because I was kind of scared I would I would get stuck in a traditional office in Portugal and I realized that I'm not really a typical Portuguese architect I re- I thought I'm going to travel I'm going to look for something else in this case I looked for postgrad courses and I ended doing um DRL which is design research laboratory at DAA architectural association uh, in London and then I did one year and a half of postgraduation um, at the Patrick Schumacher studio. And when I finished the postgrad, um, Patrick Schumacher recommended me to the office and then I did my interview and I have been working for the office for the last four years as an architectural designer. I do competitions for the last four years uh, at Zaha. So that's what I do. Okay. That sounds very intensive. <laughs> uh, it was a great sum up, but I'm going to start from the very first first point where if if there was one very first point of your life where you realized you wanted to become a designer or an architect because uh, every everybody of the guests have like different stories so what is yours uh, okay so when I was really young when I was like uh, around three or two I wanted to paint walls uh, I was actually painting the my house walls like doing all the doodles and all the drawings during the night then I'd get in trouble because of course like uh, my parents would get super angry at me so I started just like drawing on normal paper and I wanted to be a painter and I wanted to paint walls mainly. And then when I grew up and I was seven, my parents kind of talked me into being an architect. They said, uh, architects can always can also like paint uh, walls, which is a lie because you don't paint any walls. But I was like, okay, that's that's a nice trade-off because they, was, they were kind of scared that I would get into construction or something. So I said, okay, uh, sounds, sounds interesting. So I decided... I'm going to be an architect since I was seven. And then on the side, I'll be a painter. And then that was kind of good because it set uh, a very specific goal. It's not a recipe. I don't think people have to know what they want to be when they grow up necessarily. But in my case, it said like the goal was very precise. So I was not losing myself on anything else. I was really just, uh, okay, I want to be an architect. What does an architect do? What kind of marks do I need to have? So I was kind of very focused on it. and. Yeah, so when I was 18, I got in the architectural school and it was a completely different adventure when I was uh, an architect student, completely different than I thought, uh, which is kind of interesting. And then um, I started diverting a little bit to design of architecture. So now I'm an architectural designer. More Completely than... different in, in which way? Because... Uh, um... Yeah, so that's curious. It's interesting when you think you're going to be an architect, um, the first thing you think is buildings, right? And it's very much 
driven to exterior architecture, right? When you say architect, you think about boxes and buildings. And when you start the architectural school, you understand that there is a lot more than that uh, in the profession. There is this kind of poetics behind. There is like the light, there is shadow, there is culture of living, there is anthropology, there is a lot more than there's culture especially. So there is a lot more than just uh, putting buildings on, like an engineer, putting buildings on top of the earth, right? So that was like a, a big surprise when I did the School of Architecture in a positive way. There is a lot more in architecture than just putting materials on the floor and, and putting doors and windows. So yeah, it was a nice surprise. Uh, in the school and um, yeah from as I said from the video I've saw already about a little bit about your life it was a little uh, short sort of sum up um, you can see because they were like sliding pictures of your uh, student career and you were saying that you've been always uh, I'm not sure if you said you've been the always the, the only one but you said that you've been always in the university kind of living in the university yeah uh <laughs> so i guess that you have you've been always very very motivated and very very like highly mm -hmm. um yeah i don't know how to say motivated i guess to to mm -hmm. do this this work i think so you know what like i think that because i was not really good at explaining what i wanted to do verbally uh actually i started talking really late um and drawing really early. So I kind of felt that in order to explain myself or my ideas, I had to work to show them uh, because I, I definitely could not explain them like verbally. So that kind of makes you work double or I didn't see it as work, but make you put more hours into something in order to explain exactly what you think or what you think it should, or, or what your ideas are. So, When I look back, I kind of see myself trying really hard to show exactly what I wanted and what I felt it was right. So maybe, yeah, I think I was working two times or three times more, not because I wanted to have the highest marks. I, I never really cared about marks or not because I wanted to be the best of this of my class. It was like because I wanted to explain what I was doing, because I wanted to explain my ideas. So that's also why I was spending more time in the basement, in the school basement, uh, doing my, my projects and my little things. But, uh, yeah, that was this 24-hour basement in our school. And then there was, like, this small room next to it with a door to the exterior. And then I kind of took that small room for myself. And I was living there like a worm. <laughs> and people would make jokes. But uh, it was my, my tiny space in the school for myself. I, I think that uh, everybody have had similar experiences in the School of Architecture. Um, I studied in Rome, and mm -hmm. there we have also a sort of a basement where you could work with a lot, a lot of students. But yeah. um, I couldn't, I couldn't fit in in the environment in Rome. I don't know. I didn't have so many close. Uh, I knew everybody because I'm very communicative. I, I mean, <laughs> I reach out uh, strangers <laughs> to interview them. Uh, but uh, <laughs> and then I came into Germany, where I'm currently based, and uh, here as a Erasmus student, we had this room where you could access 24/7 with a card, and uh, we created there an international Erasmus community where we'd spend really 
um, nights uh, and days, and we had also a little kitchen, so it was yeah, perfect. Exactly. And and, uh, and then we had this uh, moment. I once slept on the floor because I was there for five days and I was too tired without <laughs> sleeping. And one girl, one girl put a blanket on me. And, and and I woke up and I, I found this blanket and I asked my friends, where is this blanket from? And they told me which which person gave me this blanket. I was like, oh, that, yeah. that person will be forever in my heart. So I, I know that. Yeah. I know that. But how be was... There, um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no. But there, how was it? I, I don't think I used the blanket. I think that was a time I was so cold and it was me and a friend of mine uh, sleeping on the floor that I was, I was kind of... All, going on old rooms of the school and it was at night looking for papers or looking for something and I felt I found like newspapers so we were like wrapped around newspapers and I, I thought like okay this will keep me warm at night and we slept as well three hours <laughs> but for example in this basement I like the memories that I have of it it like a, a continuous of me working even like with no timeline, just working, then people would come in the morning and say like hi and then grab a chair and people would like sit there while I was working and talk and uh, like about their problems and they will leave and then someone else would come and bring a chair. Like a super it almost like a movie, like and I never stopped working, then they, they would just come and like chat and chat and chat and then leave. And then another one would come and then leave. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. That's a good analogy. A movie. Yeah. Um, and how was your relationship with the Portuguese students and professors? Um, how how was the environment in your university where you studied in Portugal? Um, so when I joined the the school, I actually joined uh, interiors, like the interiors department, because the the mark was really really high. Um, to, to actually get in architectures and I was like one or two points lower decims like uh, so it, I was a bit sad about it but it was fine I joined our, the interiors department and people from interiors they uh, were really cool we they were my actual friends for my whole time that I was in the school in school and some of them I still keep them and then I moved to architecture one year later. And in architecture, people were a little bit different than me. They were like uh, a little bit more like introverts, I think. So I was like, um, I was closer to my the friends I did in, in, in interiors. They were like cooler and they were more like party, but not superficial people, still very deep and still very much into architecture, but still living life in a lighter way. So I was having uh, classes with architecture and then spend my, uh, the whole time with my interior friends. And of course, I did some friends with the architecture department. But for some reason, there was this culture of a bit, there, were more, there was more competition or um, I don't know. I think that emotionally, they were a little bit uh, less evolved. I think they would still hide stuff from each other or... Uh, they wouldn't sign for you on the classes, you know, this kind of thing. So uh, uh, we were good colleagues, but my friends were from the interiors department. Yes, I, I'm asking you because, yeah, I had the same experience in uh, Italy and um, that's why I didn't fit in because um, the University of uh, Rome, it's um, in the very city center of the city in uh 
if you're aware if if you're aware with Rome, it's, it's not far away from the Maxi Museum, so it's a very like central part, and a lot of the people also come from the surroundings. So they're a little, you know, only high class family are are in that area, so they would be a little bit more self um, self aware, so to say. And I, I was coming from the suburbs. I was coming from very actually a little bit out of Rome, and I I. I didn't fit. <laughs> I didn't completely fit in. Yeah. And when I moved to Frankfurt, it was a, a completely different environment because it's actually a University of Applied Sciences, which is a more practical school. It's like for not the best students, which don't make it to the university, and they yeah. go. <laughs> but it's <laughs> that's the the theory. But it was a great university here. And you you mentioned you've been to Milano too. So how uh, how did that develop? How at which point did you so did when I applied to to Erasmus, um, Milano was not like the hardest school to get in. I think it was like in seventh place or something like that. So my mark, you are placed in the in the city in a specific city according to your mark. So at that time, I couldn't go to the number one, which was uh, Barcelona. Uh, I was. F- I was fine, to be honest. I was not really attached to marks, and I don't think anyone should be to evaluation, so I was doing my thing. So when I knew I, I joined, um, I got in Milano, I grabbed one of my best friends at that time, and we decided, let's go together, uh, let's do this together. And, you know, it's funny because when I applied to Erasmus, I had the first feeling I had was uh, now I am completely free to do the kind of architecture that I want. And it's this feeling that I still like, it's very palpable even now. I remember this freedom of no one knows me. No one has any expectation of me. I'm going to do exactly what I feel that a project should be. So when I got in the Italian school, they were obviously like my school, like very much like modernists and uh, tied to Le Corbusier and all that. And I thought like no one knows anything about me. So I did like crazy, crazy stuff, like crazy projects. I even remember when you do these crazy things, people either think you're crazy or you're, you're a genius. And I was lucky that they felt, they said it, uh, she's a genius. She's a genius. I remember this professor showing my stuff, look at this genealogy. And it's nothing. It's just someone who said, now I can be whatever. Now I can do whatever. So that that was the only difference. And I used the Erasmus uh, excuse many times. I said, yeah, but in my country, we do it like this. You know? That's, so, that's a classic. <laughs> yeah, it's a classic. So I was like, uh, so they wouldn't think that I'm crazy. <laughs> uh, in the end, because when, when you do very complex projects, you also get a, ro- a lot of extra work. So in the end, I ended up uh, working a lot more than doing Erasmus. I was working like hardcore, uh, but at least I did the kind of projects that I wanted. So that was my my poly- experience at the Politecnico in Milano. And it was a super cool school. Right now, I think it's ranked like one of the best schools of architecture to get in. Yeah. Yes, it's it's definitely one of the top. I think in top ten, ten top ten for sure. Yeah. But yeah, with Erasmus, you have uh, of course the opportunity to go abroad and uh, be unknown uh, yeah. from the teachers. And of course, it's also a lot of like people go for a lot of you know party and experience with other people. But I have 
also, for example, as you said, um, notice that you have this uh, creative freedom because also the the professors from the abroad university, I, I had the feeling they tried less to influence you because they think, okay, exactly. she's going to be here one year. Yeah. So I, they, she's not like my student, but not really. So yeah. um, they give you, and, and they like... Uh, Especially in Italy, uh, it was like this, and in Germany too. Professors are like, I'm not gonna like, uh, you're gonna pass anyways because they don't want to make troubles. Because yeah. if you don't pass, it's a big trouble. So it's um, it mm -hmm. it's nice experience if you do it in a positive way as as you did. And how was to go back then to Portugal after you have had this? I guess year. How long have you yeah. stayed in Milan? And yeah, where year. you could? Yeah, one year. And, And going back where you need to adapt again, how, how was that? I know. And it's not just that. You, you, I left Milan like with this huge confidence, like now I know who I am and now I know my identity. And, and then when I, got to, when I got back, it was like, oof, <laughs> another slap in the face, like, no, no, <laughs> no curves, no curvy buildings, 90 degrees. And uh, I th it was actually one of the toughest years in my Uh, in my school the last year uh, but it was fine I managed and um, after you graduated this uh, master in Portugal how did you um, trans how did you make this transition which is uh, very crucial to move from mm -hmm. school to I don't know professional world and then to decide or decide what you're going to do next mm -hmm. yeah Um, it's kind of a weird uh, jump, right, from um, finishing your school, your university, and what do you do after. It's a super weird jump. And I even have a feeling that we don't have enough support for that jump, right? So one of the things that I'm trying to do right now is to kind of mitigate this gap between students and professions and professionals. And that's why I am a very outspoken uh, person. So I try to spread my word as much as I can in order to make this jump uh, seem smaller so students see professionals that are young and uh, it's, it kind of mitigates the step. So when I finished, um, it was not, I was not very happy. It was a super hard final presentation. Um, one judge wanted to fail me, the other judge wanted to give me higher, the highest score, so it was very controversial. And one thing I was very, very certain, I knew that I could not get myself into a traditional office in Portugal because that would kill my creativity. And I know it sounds like a diva kind of thing, but it's not. I think everyone should be allowed to not to be stuck and to push your creativity as much as you can till whenever you want. The world is huge. You don't need to stay in your little country. But of course, you don't think like this uh, at that time. You just you have you just feel a little bit of fear, especially because everyone when they they do the same thing, right? Everyone finishes their master and they join they join an office. They do internship for a year and then they move to another office or they stay. Everyone does this. So when when you're feeling that you're doing something different, you kind of wonder. Is it is it uh, is it okay to be doing something different? Am I risking something that it's that it's stupid, you know? So I just made up my mind. I just decided I have to find something else. Uh, I'm not going to do internship, and I haven't done internship yet. And it's been like seven years, and I haven't done internship. 
so I decided no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna join any office. I'm not gonna do internship. Like I need to look for something else. It was really like a visceral kind of need. So I joined a tiny office that kind of embraced me under the table, nothing official, and I was just like taking care of my portfolio and working for them and having a bit of a good time. And then I applied to the to the architectural association. I went to the open day. One day I decided, okay, there's the open day of this school. I'm going to go to this open day. I went and it was the final presentations of the DRL. And that's when I realized, okay, I think everything I have been thinking and everything I have been doing makes sense here in another country. So I think it's time for me to move regardless of being, I don't know, an immigrant or regardless of this fear of moving countries. It was really not about that. It was just, I fit better there. I think it's better if I go there without thinking about, am I moving countries? Am I, I, you know, it was more like I fit there. It's there. But um, I have a question on the side because um, I've uh, got to know about the AA when I was already in high school because I did a high school of uh, arts in Rome and my ah. teachers, some of them were architects mm -hmm. and uh, they were telling us because we had sort of architectural classes because what I, my studies were already in high school uh, with a little bit of architecture. And um, I'm curious uh, because I know that it's a kind of expensive school and masters to do. Yeah. Did you did you manage to get some uh, scholarship or did you need to take a loan or did your family manage to support you? Mm. Um I'm asking just for the matter because um, it's called a creative insider. So we get like really insider information no, to know. I think it's good you're asking. Feel free to ask anything related to what you think is controversial or uncomfortable. <laughs> no, it's not about being uh, uncomfortable, but I, I always put myself, you know, um, I come from a family which was very like practical, like yeah. uh, get get quick through this, find a job because, uh, you know, it it's, was never like... Uh, with yeah. a, a plenty of resources and um, people might think, yeah, that's nice to go to AA, but how do you do it? So that, w that mm -hmm. was just my, my idea to ask you this. I'm going to be very honest. I think I was pretty, when I look back, I think I was privileged to have it. Uh, I kind of tried to get the, um, I tried to get like some aid from my school and they didn't have any, any help and then they told me under very extraordinary circumstances we can pay you a scholarship uh, so it was like a no-go I think uh, I don't know I, I would most likely not have both legs and maybe they, they gave me the scholarship so um, I kind of had to go on the traditional with the traditional way and when I look back I really think that I'm only here because my parents really did an investment it was they didn't tell me we are investing on you but I'm pretty sure that they were they had this conversation alone and they decided let's invest this money on this course and let's see what she does with it they they never gave me this pressure but they did pay the full amount which is in insane it makes no sense plus the money that you have to spend when you're doing the course to 3d print stuff to print stuff to all the softwares like it's a lot of money to the london rent it, it is a lot of money and i'm very happy that other courses are jumping in a lot cheaper courses covering more or less the same topics so I teach at DAA right now, but I think I'm super comfortable to say if you cannot afford DRL, look for 
good alternatives and they are actually super good alternatives like Bartlett, BPro, the BPro inside of Bartlett, some UCL um, masters and postgrads. So there are other ways, thank God. And then another good thing that is happening is people who left the DRL are also teaching online. Um, so they're bringing the knowledge that you're getting inside of DRL out and spreading them a little bit for cheaper prices uh, outside, which I think is really important. Of course, it's better when you actually do the DRL because you have the connections, you have Patrick as a connection as well, and, and you deal with some very good tutors as well. But it's good that we are kind of spreading this and making this a little bit more reachable to a wider audience. But my parents did this investment on me. I I clearly understood, okay, this is a huge investment and and I felt I'm I'm going I have to succeed on this. So that's also one of the reasons why I was so focused on doing well and getting into Zaha after because that would make the invest the investment worth. Um so yeah, but it's crazy expensive. Crazy, crazy. And um I I get that, but I mean that sounded like the perfect, uh, you know, closing yeah. of the circle because you started having this passion, painting the home walls when you were a kid, and then they yeah. instilled in you the idea. With so it's kind of a little bit also their fault. But uh, how how it's to because uh, also you I guess you have to apply to get a spot because I, I guess that if you are applying into one what is considered uh, the the school of architecture in the world uh, there are a limited amount of spots I guess mm -hmm. how is this process like how what do you yeah. do to apply uh, so I was a bit scared about that because I saw that on their final presentation that they were they were relying so much on 3d and on renders and a lot of visualization and I was doing AutoCAD so I was kind of I'm going to apply with my portfolio, but I'm not going to, I thought I will, there's very low chances I might get in. Uh, so they usually receive like 300 or 200 applications and then they get like 30 or 40 people. And I applied with my portfolio, which at that time, it was not really a portfolio. I just did the best I could with my final master thesis. I covered all the topics with my master uh, thesis and I was like, you know, fingers crossed. Uh, they picked me. I was calling the school every other week <laughs> to know, did I get in? Did I get in? Um, and then uh, I got in and I honestly, I think that for the first six months, I felt like I was the last person they admitted. I know this is crazy and you should never think like that, but everyone had such good um, preparation regarding 3D and visualizing. And I was like, a bit more traditional because I was Portuguese and I was not necessarily very robotic driven, you know, or generative design kind of driven. So I always felt, okay, I, I was probably the last one they admitted. And then, of course, with time, I understood that was, I was better than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, you called them too many times. So they were like, "Let's let's stop her calling." They just admit her. <laughs> so, they're like, "Can you can you do fourteen instead of 39? And They're like, "Okay." <laughs> but you said you needed to cover some topics. Did did they require a portfolio that covers different no, subjects? No, no, no. Or you just no, took no, your thesis no. and uh, and uh, sort of create a portfolio out of it. If you want, uh, we can do, uh, for example, I have had um, Lucian uh, Rakovitan. He was a former employee at Big. And um, he was also a very funny guy because uh, 
he also applied at Bjork Ingels Group with just some collage, and um, he got the job. And uh, he also was like, hey, and I applied at Big, and they hired me, and it was okay. And yeah. then he sent me his first portfolio, and we put it on Instagram. Uh, so a motivational, like a motivational uh, post. So if you if you have that portfolio and you want to share, we can do something uh, about okay. it. <laughs> Think about yeah. it. And um, okay, and you you started at the AA. From what I know, like um, I think that what you said you had to spend also a lot of extra money on other side things, but mm-hmm. I I thought that AA gives you a lot of you know infrastructure, three D printers, software, or no, you have to get yeah. that on you. Yeah, but I think at that time we had like um, I don't know, like ten three D printers uh, for the whole school. So it was most of the time super booked. So even if you if you could get like a machine, let's say a small piece of twenty centimeters high would would take like one day to print, and they want you to fill like tables and tables of prints. So that means that you have to be printing twenty four hours every day. So we had to buy a three D printer. Uh, they would mm-hmm. tell you like if if the director of the DRL was listening, he would say, "Yeah, but you don't need to 3D print every like every day, but you do. You actually do yeah, because you do yeah. because they're overbooked." Yeah. And and who were your teachers? How long was the course? What what did they, they teach you that was so much different than the 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 other schools? Mm-hmm. I'm so, I'm curious. Here, I don't know what to ask. Just go around. So uh, the first thing that you see when you look at DRL stuff is the the graphics are impressive, like super impressive. The the graphics and the 3Ds are very impressive and the simulations are very impressive. Uh, They teach you all of this in the first six months. So you join and you have at least like six different softwares with mandatory classes. So six months with mandatory software classes from coding to any simulation software to uh, to crowd simulation and then particle simulation. Then you have the traditional 3D softwares like Maya, not so traditional, but Maya, Rhino, Grasshopper, all of these six months, a super, super intense uh, software kind of slap in the face. Uh, at the same time, you're doing like workshops to put in practice these softwares, okay? And then after these six months, uh, this period stops and you have to pick a studio, um, which will be your final thesis. And you have one year for this studio. You have to pick teammates, like groups of three or four. And right now we have like three, right now we have three studios. One studio, which is from the director of the of the course, Theodore's uh, Spiropoulos. And he does a, a bit more like prototyping, um, single units, assembling units, uh, very robotic, but without using a robotic arm, you know what I mean? Uh, so that's a little bit f- the course that is further away from the architectural discourse. And then you have Sajay Bushan and Alicia, and they are doing a bit more like robotic fabrication. Uh, so pieces, uh, assembling pieces in order to create architectural elements. So it's a bit more architectural, but it's very much tied to robotic fabrication. Uh, you deal with uh, with robotic arms, uh, with a lot of coding to control the robotic arms, and a lot of modeling towards, um, I don't know, minimal f- surfaces or um, 
complex geometry that can be assembled by a robotic arm. So it's a bit more robotic. And then there's a third studio, which is Patrick Schumacher Studio, um, the studio that I did that is um, a lot more architectural, uh, closer to the Zaha office um, process-wise. So you you have a site, you have a brief, you generate the urban flow, and then you start modeling that. And in my case, I did towers in London, and then you model the towers. Um, of course, all of this has to come from a generative process. So to in order to get a generative process, you need to learn softwares that are generative, like the Grasshopper. Uh, so what the DRL brings you that is different from the other schools is parametric design, which is something that uh, Patrick kind of holds a patent on. Parametric design, generative design, digital design, and everything that kind of uses a software as an aid for you to achieve a certain design. Okay, so softwares are really, really important in these courses. And yeah, completely different from our normal school route since when uh, software aids design in a traditional school never right software is like a documentation kind of tool in the conventional school but um i'm curious did they teach you also some different way of because i mean you have to think a little bit different i guess when you put in your hands with this tool because um the designs that come out of of those laboratories and of of also of Zahadid architects they look so so much different than what you see around mm -hmm. you know like uh for example i had the pleasure to experience you know maxi museum when it was opened um when i went there i was i think it was my first semester of architecture or something like that. So my, mm. my, and I went with my dad who, who has nothing to do with architecture, but we were so impressed by just the, the flow of, of the, yeah. of us, of us inside the building was yeah. really, you, you, you it's so f fluid also. It has like mm -hmm. these stripes where you can go in every direction and you kind of go through no matter where you start. Um, so I was thinking, do you get also some different mindset to approach design there? Um, you, you do, of course, you get this, uh, the generative kind of way to think about of architecture, but you know what? I think that this fluidity in design is not a way of thinking. They never told me to be fluid when I was doing design, but when you really start, um, approach, trying to tie, human behavior, human flow, whenever you do anything about flow, uh, people flowing, nature, I think that the most obvious conclusion from this is fluid forms. I think that the traditional forms that we do, the 90 degrees forms and this rigid kind of box um, that we do in architecture is an imposition of human practice in space. You know, it's not the natural course of architecture. I don't think that if we were all allowed to do the natural course of architecture, I don't think it would be 90 degrees. I think we do it because of budget, because of construction methods. It's, it is uh, less natural than the fluid space and it's more of an imposition than the fluid space. So when you are allowed and not just allowed, when they kind of make you um, 
actually take human behavior into architectural, I think it's more than natural that your forms become fluid. Uh, you, you stop thinking about architects as these gods of artificial spaces that land a box on a street. You know, you really take flow into place. And uh, I think that even like the comfort feeling that someone has inside of a space, most likely your comfort would come from fluid inner interior spaces more than these corners, that the sharp corners that we have around us. And if if they don't use budget as a constraint, I think that our, our natural gut will go into fluid architecture and organic architecture. It's not like a style. I think yes. it's just a natural way of things. But I think the future will be more of that also because now we are starting seeing more and more uh, projects uh, or experimental projects uh, with also, you know, that the robots that build the houses with yeah. the, all the projects they're doing now for Mars. Um, it's funny because um, I was watching also on Netflix uh, that last movie with George Clooney, it came out like around christmas I and so cool yeah and it was a lot of that in that movie yeah. because you could see all their all their environment all their objects where even you know you could see his uh, rifle was with this uh, 3d printed shape uh, which will be you know the the future of saving yeah. materials also so I think this will be when when technology will get affordable that you can build this on mass I, I think that 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 will be that will be very interesting. Um, you know what and- it was like my biggest disappointment when I was at at the DRL school. Like after some time, you really get into technology and into robotic fabrication and into like a different way of imagining space. And after some time, like I say, let's say a year, you think, okay, let's. Why don't we do this now? Why why is this not real? And then you realize that there is a huge gap between speculation and digital speculation and robotic speculation and technology speculation and reality because we are still assembling bricks, you know, and that's the reality. As much as you think about Mars, about these crazy houses, reality is we are still on site assembling bricks manually. And that was like, I think that was the huge disappointment I had when I was doing DRL. It's like, this is all just speculations because we are so far away from the real technology advances. Yeah. And also, I think that we have to develop further a little bit the the, the, the robots that built uh, that, build the, that yeah, stuff. as well. Yeah. Be- because I've been also here with my school uh, in Frankfurt. We went to visit um, in Stuttgart. They have also an institute that builds every year a pavilion. If I don't probably aware, they did they yeah, do these pavilions with no. they like with the wires. Um, so um, they had this um, pavilion which was uh, simulating a bridge, and they they said that it's gonna it was built with drones. If you if you, if you read the articles, they say drones were pulling around the strings. Yeah. But when we were there, they said, yeah, we started with the drones, but you know, it's uh, they didn't they didn't uh, have this power to to do it all yeah. the time. 
So part of it they did manually, <laughs> but the drones really uh, exactly. But that's exactly the kind of disappointment we had on DRL. Like we also did a lot of drones kind of thing, and then it was like, yeah, but then reality is drones need to put battery back, and then they lose they waste so much battery. So manual work is still more profitable. Yes, yeah. yes. I think we need to figure out that stuff, and then it's gonna be more. Yeah more massive but i think it's gonna get a little bit of time still it's it's getting there probably now it's moving further on um, but what what it got me curious what you said before is that you needed to do your final project with other two people right yeah how is it to put on like uh sort of gamble <laughs> your final project with two people because i i know i know how it is to work like in groups at the university yeah. and i think that the problem i like i get what is the the point the point is that you're gonna work in a team in your profession it's impossible like generally don't work alone and um you have to learn to work with other people but the problem in the university is that there is no structure hierarchy or the same motivation I guess at the AA there is high motivation, but still you never know. So how was that experience? Did you manage to have good? Uh, so you know what I what I told like the younger people who joined after me. Uh, they said, "Ah, oh, it's so hard uh, the final thesis and the project." And I said, "You know what's really hard about the DRL? It's a social experiment. <laughs> the hardest part about this project is, get, is getting your team in sync." Because this is not just one final project, it's a whole research. So you all need to agree on your research. Um, and I think it was a social experiment for me, 100%. So I teamed up with uh, very strong people. Uh, one guy from Bogotá, Juan Carlos. Uh, one guy from Chile, uh, Nicolas Tornero, and me. And we are more or less in the, from the same generation. I would be fighting, not fighting, but arguing with Juan Carlos like... Every time we had a subject, we would completely disagree, but not in a bad way, like not in a vicious way. We would just like argue and counter back and argue and counter back. And uh, we would spend hours just arguing about, I don't know, whatever, like between Le Corbusier or Philip Johnson, you know, like this kind of uh, these courses. Uh, <laughs> in the end, uh, I think it worked. It worked well. Of course, some people work more than other people in the team, and f after some time, you realize who does what better. So I was better at coordinating the team and making sure that everything was done, and um, you know, organizing the final elements. It's really important that someone is like looking at it, um, organizing stuff. Basically, uh, I was doing a lot of work, of course, but you know, in my head, I was like. I know exactly what needs to be done. I know exactly what this person needs to give me, that person needs to give me, and this needs to be shown like this, like the overall vision. And then there was a, another guy who was modeling really well, and then Juan was kind of doing some other modeling on the side and render. So after you realize who does what and who is good at doing what, everything comes together. Uh, until then, you're kind of fighting for what spot you should be on and who should be doing what, you know? But it was super challenging. I think it was more challenging than the project, the actual project. Um, now that you mentioned you had two um, male teammates, is there any you know 
do they try to keep some sort of uh, mixture of male or female? Do you just get the best or uh, how was the, the division? Because this is now a very, very, you know, um, actual topic about uh, gender equality, mm-hmm. women. And um, I, I, I don't know, I, um, I have different opinions about the topic, but I think also about sometimes about the guests of the podcast, I think, okay, we have only guys, but it's not on purpose. Like we don't have only guys, but we have most guys because just don't, doesn't happen that I, I found girls. If I, fi- I found you and I think <laughs> you're good and I, I invite whoever is good. So, yeah. so and I want to also know your opinion. Your, uh, tough. Don't ask me that. That's going to be a tough answer. No, it's no, but you- on DRL, it was very organic. Uh, no one was thinking about it. And I also have a feeling that DRL was not very gender uh, driven. No one was really and thinking about the gender. I don't even mm. remember how many women uh, or men we had. It was more like, you know, I, I think because everyone was coming from their own countries and for the same time gathering with so many different people, we were more like who is from where. You know, like mm. I represent Portugal, you represent Bogota, you represent Chile, you represent. So it was more like culturally uh, divided and and segregated than actually gender thing because the the biggest impact was your culture. So um, I joined Juan and Nico. I actually gathered them together. I put them together. I did the the team, and so no one did the team. I I spoke with Juan and we said, okay, let's team up and let's bring someone else. And I said, Nico is is good. Let's bring Nico. So it was not forced. It was organic. But in general, what what is your opinion like? Because my personal uh, opinion is that, uh, I mean, um, you are working in one of the top of the chain offices in the world, mm-hmm. and I think you do because you're good and you're prepared for sure. And but not every girl gonna be prepared, or me that I'm a guy, I'm not gonna be able to do your job because I'm just not able of doing it. Yeah. So my my personal opinion, like if you have ever experienced in your career any, like, I don't know, did you feel ever that you have been, I don't know, put in the back because you're a girl or no? Uh, I think it's a very tough question that you're doing this because you said, you're you said, speaking you said, with a person that I'm... You said, you said I'm going to have to yeah, be yeah, tough. Yeah, I know. I, I knew it would come, but I'm going to be... Very honest. I'm very political in my op- opinions because I understood that I have to be political. Nevertheless, I'm very outspoken. This subject, I'm not political at all. <laughs> I'm very hardcore on this subject, but uh, it's good that, for example, my boyfriend or my family, they it's the only subject that they try to call me down and to see it's not gender, it's not gender-based, it's not gender-based. For me, I'm kind of this kind of person that thinks that a lot of things are gender-based. Um, I, I see it. And for example, you said how many people went into your podcast. I do it naturally. I know how many people you have, how many women uh, versus men you have on your podcast. I, I always pay attention to that. Or uh, on talks, Instagram talks, I know who does more men and who does more women. Uh, it's actually like a subject that has been pissing me off quite a bit. Some people actually just interview men and I don't, I don't, I really don't understand why. And then I understood why. But, um, or workshops or whole classes like the B Pro, these guys don't have 
one single woman like teaching. Uh, I always pay attention to this, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's unconscious. I don't do it even on purpose. But if I'm on a meeting, I know how many women are there. If I'm working on a project, I and I know how many women are there, and I do it unconscious. It's unconscious, but I do it. Uh, I think that maybe a lot of women do it as well. Uh, I don't think I was put back in the back because I'm a woman because um. I am. I have a strong character, and I have a strong personality. So that usually outshadows the fact that I'm women or, or or men. It's very personality based. I do think that men uh, trust men for one very simple reason. I think that we all know that men uh, have a, a difficulty of understanding women. Uh, I don't think it's just women. I think it's a little bit whatever is a bit different than them. Even these conversations that we have been having about non-binary uh, uh, world, the transgender, the cis men, the cis women, I think that men have a, a bit less flexibility to understand something that is different than, than them, which I don't think is necessarily their, their fault because the world kind of told you to, that it's okay because you are the most powerful one. You don't need to make that flexibility you don't need to see anything else that's different than you because you're already the powerful one so it's kind of a lazy attitude um it obviously depends on your culture obviously depends on your family for example my boyfriend definitely not like that uh, it really depends on who raised you as well but men are still in general very stereotypical idea very lazy about understanding something else that's different than them. And that obviously brings some confidence and trust issues. Like, why would you trust something that you think it's unpredictable? Or why would you trust something that you don't understand? You know what I mean? So in office, in work, in whatever, in society, I feel that oh, I'm going to tell you my idea, but it doesn't mean that you are going to trust me. You're not going to trust that this is the best way to move forward. Because you're still like, you are unpredictable. I'm not sure how how you think. You know what I mean? So in a way, I still think and I always think that I'm going to tell my idea. I'm going to say exactly what I think. I know that you're going to be a little bit suspicious about it. And this still happens. Uh, but I think it's logical. It's just I, I can I can tell you as a guy that I've been uh, working with, um, of, of course, with women. I have had uh, different bosses which were women, and uh, I have also colleagues on my same level which are women. And generally, personally, when I'm at work, I uh, don't care at all who I have in front of me, yeah. and I, I I really like if there is the better idea and if it comes from a girl or from whoever i'm i'm fine with it i can mm. i cannot say that for every every guy i can see that sometimes there are some maybe there is this um uh, this um prejudice or whatever you want to call it in my case i i come from a family of immigrants so i have experienced myself this mistrust of of the unknown so to say because exactly. i was the exterior element at some point in my life and uh, i start i really don't um I really don't think in that in that form, as you said, uh, and I really appreciate the best idea. And really, on professional level, it's that's not a factor for me. Um, but and I think uh, I'm a big promoter of 
uh, equal uh, opportunities, equal um, mm -hmm. treatment, um, equal payment in the same role. Uh, uh, because, mm -hmm. but I also think that nowadays um, there is too much polarization. I've heard recently another okay. podcast, which um, because now there is this gender fluidity and a lot of a lot of mm -hmm. I don't know how I, I don't know which were the. Um, it was an interview of uh, actually a woman, a black woman, which I don't remember her name. She's a former Dutch politician. She's a Somali refugee, and um, she wrote. She's a author, um, and she was also under protection because she was. She did a movie about Islam, and some uh, terrorist oh. organization want to kill her, and they killed the the actual the the other guy who did the film with her, and they put her into protection. Um, and now she's canceled because she's opposing the idea that women should be called women and not uh, people who menstruate. So I think that if there are these things which are positive, talking about uh, having uh -huh. same opportunities, yeah. uh, taking being taken serious, if they put like if they gonna get in a different level, Ex extremized then people have two choices whether one extremism which is this one or yeah. trump and, and they don't have like no middle of uh, range yeah. so i think this is um this is a little problematic currently i agree but, and, and and to be honest i think that even like the typical stereotypical white privileged men in the patriarchy world will have to be more flexible to something more than uh, is this women or men I know, you know what I mean? I think we are talking about other stuff that are equally important, which is the in-between between women and men. It's not binary now. We are understanding that there are people who are not women and men. They are in-between and they are free to be in-between as long as they don't harm anyone or as long as no one harms anyone. You need to, to recognize yourself as in the way that you feel more comfortable and happy about. So I think these typical men will actually need to understand there's something else than women and men. And, and and to understand that things will have to be more flexible and more tolerant to the differences. I, I agree with you. I think just this changing language, it's something that scares moderate yeah. people and turns them into something like, for example, me personally, I'm very moderate. I, I, as, as I said, I don't. Um, and I also don't feel like white, white male, privileged white male, because I come from Bulgaria. Yeah. <laughs> so we we have a, a joke. We, we say we're the only white people that are not very white because <laughs> of the history of the country. Uh, but yeah, so I wanted to ask you this because it's it's going around a lot. And I, I don't have the opportunity to talk to, to uh, yeah. a lot of uh, women if you want, if you allow me yeah. to say in your position, because you're clearly some, some, someone that has, uh, I don't want to say uh, success because that's very relative, but you're yeah. accomplished. Like you, you can say you're happy with what you do and you, you, mm -hmm. you, you do what mm -hmm. you love. But now let's let's go back on on the <laughs> on the last. <laughs> I knew, but I knew this would come. <laughs> I, yeah. I think it's nice to talk about it's it. Important, it's important. It's important to yeah. talk about it and exchange opinions. And it's also, um, I also think that um, before in the past, uh, intellectuals, artists, authors were the one that were uh, setting some trends. You know, they were having these dialogues and discussions. 
And I think that podcasting is one of the modern way to do it. You know, like yeah, we don't sit anymore with the wine in a, now we don't sit in a bar anyways because they're closed. But uh, it's, a, it's a way to set up a conversation that can reach a lot of people. And mm-hmm. then they can ask, I don't say that there is one opinion that's right or wrong. I, I, I'm also promoting dialogue. Mm-hmm. People should talk. Um, and so you you kind of finish the project with with this uh, two other Latinos. Latinos. <laughs> Latino we even team. we had a fight about the Latinos even <laughs> <laughs> because we did Latin like our country actually made up Latin and but they are the Latinos and I couldn't I, you know I couldn't get the word Latina because that would be appropriation. We had this huge argument. Wait a second! I come from Italy. They invent the Latin language they in Rome. Invented, exactly. So you are the Latins. That's exactly what I was telling them. Like, no, you did the appropriation they were like no we are the real latins because we are south americans <laughs> uh, and and afterwards you said you did also post post graduate something like that like after the you finished this uh, so no, first the, of all how was, was the, the presentation was it was it was it successful this uh, project uh, you did? i would say to be very honest with you i think it was um average average I, I think so. I think so. Like in my opinion, it was a bit. Afterwards, I saw Patrick actually presenting our project in Princeton. So it's not that average, okay? He was presenting our stuff to Princeton School. But uh, when I did it, like, and when you look at the order of who presented, we were in the middle. So it was a bit like. Ee. You're a mid-level Princeton, I can. (laughs) I don't know. I don't like to idealize those institutions somehow because I think it's, I mean, uh, I mean, are you a person? I'm talking to you having this conversation. So everybody that has a talent can can make it. And and then I guess that you have had the created, you said yourself, this good connection with Patrick Schumacher. And and from there on, you got to get the interview with uh, with with the office to get yeah. in. It was not a, it was not like a good connection connection with Patrick because it's actually hard to get a connection with Patrick. He's a very busy person. But there was actually a moment one day after I presented or the day I presented that I I had to have the courage to come next to him and to say, Patrick, do you think I can give you my portfolio and um, you can get me an interview? Uh, it was like a super hard moment. You know, these moments when you feel that you jump to the pool and you're like, okay, I just, I jumped. <laughs> How <laughs> I was his reaction? It. He said, no. He said, uh, we are not hired. And I was like, oh my really? God, this was awful. I thought this, this was a terrible experience. <laughs> yeah, but then a couple of days later, he said he actually um, asked his assistant to email me and to ask me for... Uh, my stuff with um, the, one of the directors of Zaha on CC. So I, I think he was just not in a good time when I asked him. <laughs> but um, the stuff that you send as a portfolio for Zaha did architects, uh, was everything made in during this uh, one and a half year at the AA? Yeah, or were there also works before? What Did it make um, any sense? send something I, I i just sent like it was also again not a traditional portfolio i sent my final mis- uh, masters in lisbon and my final masters in london just two projects 
covering renders, covering intellectual property, covering uh, creativity, covering concept design, covering detail. There's two projects that cover everything that you need to know about me. And that's it. And how was the interview when you then when they invite I guess they invited to some interview yeah. with whom and how did that go? So they set the interview with um, the director of my cluster, which is the competition cluster, and then they set an interview uh, also present that was another director from another cluster in. It was very obvious uh, that I was part. I should be concept design and I should be competition. It was obvious. But anyway, they kind of brought two different directors. I was super nervous. and But I think I did a very good job before. Like I even searched on YouTube and I searched everywhere I could how to prepare to an interview. It's important that you know how to breathe, how to articulate, how to calm down your nervous. I was doing everything you could imagine, tricks, to kind of be like this, like laid, uh, laid back and chill. Uh, I think that what really... Um, messes you up when you do an interview with your nerves your nerves everything else is fine like it's your work you cannot do anything about it but you can really mess an interview up with your nerves so i was kind of like practicing a lot before even outside of the office i was like you know breathing and like moving my mouth and widening my mouth to kind of articulate uh, better i read about the biography of all the biography from these two directors so i was kind of prepared very prepared to be very prepared. how how long time did you have between the the moment they tell you you're gonna be in an interview and the actual interview it was like a week a uh, okay so you i, I i've been uh, i've changed a couple of times my my job and what i, I didn't uh, i didn't always do research i never i am always a very calm person in a stressful situation i'm always like sort of this before every sort of uh, big colloquium or presentation i'm a little stressed before but yeah. the moment i get into the situation i feel very very okay um but i want to give my personal suggestion in a part if it's a hadith and you want to really work at that office is that you have always to think that the, those people need to want you to and not only you want the job because it's yeah. I, I see this job relationship a little bit like a personal relationship you're gonna be spending a lot of time uh there and with these people so you better be yourself and hope that they're gonna like you for who yeah. you are instead of faking who you are and then uh, creating false expectations yeah. I guess your interview went very well <laughs> because you're still working at that office. Yeah. And what were your? Uh, so you said you're it's uh, you're in the cluster of competition. So mm -hmm. I, I don't, I'm not familiar with this uh, word clusters in the office. So mm -hmm. how is this organization? If it's not a secret? Uh, no, no, it's not a secret. Uh, it's uh, how a big office is also organizes in different departments, right? So it's not like very big office with a lot of people going around so it, it has departments we uh, they call it clusters uh, so there's cluster one cluster two cluster three um uh, design cluster which is more for uh, product design the code cluster which is more research driven and then zaha cluster which is the cluster that does high-end design and competitions and usually most of the big designs that you see on the web they came from this cluster so obviously there are a lot of projects that work as bread and butter, you know, for the company. There are the projects that you don't see them online. 
they are the bread and butter projects um, with very specific clients and they kind of belong to um, specific clusters. But most of the competitions that required a lot of design, they pass um, through our cluster. It's a cluster of 40 people or 30 people. We model mostly in Maya. We don't model in Rhino or 3ds Max. We model in Maya. Um, we do concept design, and then we decide on which project, which option to uh, continue based on the client feedback or based on the plans or based on a lot of criteria. And then we take that design and we move forward till we submit a competition, which is like it takes four months for a competition to be submitted. Uh, teams of like five designers and then after four months you start a new competition and then they give you one day off and then you start a new competition and then a oh, day off competition and, and so on and so forth. So my job is a bit like getting the brief, coordinating with the other team, the plan team and the section team and the 2D team and to give a thousand of different ideas, a thousand of different ideas, as many ideas as I can for a specific brief. But are you the only one that gives the ideas or you also have like brainstorms with the whole team and yeah. then you all put it's together? Like, like imagine a team of five people giving ideas. Three people oh. actively giving ideas, other two like more like the leads kind of commenting on the ideas. Um, let's say that they are expecting two options per people per person. So it's like six options in the end that are on the table to be uh, revised and then we pick one option from those six options and then we move forward with that option and uh you mentioned also like i uh, your co current role is the design directors so you're the director of one of those teams i suppose no i'm a, oh. i'm a senior i'm not director so the it's not called director more like the lead designer is yeah lead designer yeah, there's so. a lead designer and then there's seniors and then there's designers. But your first role was just being part of one of those teams. Yes, as an architectural uh, assistant, they call it. Assistant. Okay, and then based probably on what ideas you gave along the, the your career there, they saw that you have some feeling for. Because I think that the 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 very important skill you have to have in competitions is really have the feeling of the brief and what is gonna mm -hmm. win it. I guess. True. Yeah, but not everyone has the feeling. Uh, yeah, which so is fine. Which is fine because, like, probably your lead has a vision or your director has a vision. So it's also good that you know how to kind of follow what you're told. So even if you don't have a very, a very big feeling, at least you're good at following someone else's, which is it's still valid. Yes, and what it's curious to me now that you mentioned this is. Um, Zaha, did architects have this sort of, um, I don't want to, uh, it's sort of like uh, there is this brand uh, brand line, so to say, like uh, the mm. you can say different, if there are, dif there are different typologies of buildings that are from Zaha did, but you kind of can say, okay, this building might be from Zaha did. So do you have also like um, some control from a further level above to, keep this line or you, it's just in, mm. in in the inside the philosophy of the of the office and everybody have this sort of philosophy also for themselves um you know i'm not sure if um we see that line on some projects but not all projects you see that line and even if you 
if you decide to go through the comment section, everyone says, this is not Zaha, this is not... But then that's the reality. It's, in the office, there's no one telling you this should be more Zaha or less Zaha. You know what I mean? Uh, a project should fit a brief and should fit a client. Sometimes they look more like the Zaha traditional projects. Sometimes they're more boxy and it's still from Zaha. So it's not like a style that they 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 give you quite the opposite when you're when you join in the beginning you have zero uh, knowledge of the cliches of zaha of how to do the cliches uh so they kind of are very interested to see what you come up with as an original and fresh idea even me like i've been there for four years i really like to see what assistants do because they bring some fresh qualities into it so after some time you kind of of course become a bit lazy and and do the traditional stuff uh, which is not super praised to be honest they don't like when you are already molded into this style that we call style but uh, i think uh, people should really understand that there's no style although we see some similarities there's no style because it can they cannot have a style it it, it shouldn't even it's not smart to have a style right it should fit a culture a client, a budget, a program. It fits a lot of other criteria and the style. Sometimes I do cubes. Actually, I do a lot of cubes. They call them pixels. They are just cubes. <laughs> uh, and they are still Zaha because they came from the office. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I, before the podcast started uh, on the recording form, so to say, we were talking about uh, that you, you have to keep some secrecy about the projects you're working on, and I'm not going to ask you about those. But uh, now that I think about it, I've worked here in Frankfurt in an office where I had the uh, luck to see um, two uh, competition projects of Zaha did because we were the evaluating studio. Um, that now, now that now, and that's going to be fun. If now, if you have done this, you didn't win. No, 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 really? none, of none of them. None oh of them God. because one competition was the Frankfurt School of Finance, mm -hmm. uh, which Zaha did had presented a project, uh, which was this also kind of crazy canopy that was going. It's it's a very interesting, and then the, the Frankfurt Four that that. There is four towers, mm -hmm. uh, which then uh, I have seen a similar, like I've seen that project, uh, the, the 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 layouts for for the pro competition, which then UN Studio won because they had won already the master plan and everything, and then I saw seen the similar, very very similar design from Zaha for for um du no, I don't know if it was Dubai but somewhere else um and I'm thinking when you create this uh, uh competition ideas which are not always mm, successful and uh I've seen this for example Bjork Ingels ha has that said that in many 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 interviews or talks he has given is that they these ideas they don't die after the yeah, competition is finished but they are uh, like going into a sort of a shelf and <laughs> whenever yeah, exactly. this, this idea could work again you you sort of pick it pick it back so is it a similar yeah of course i think it should be like that uh, everywhere in any creative industry that we have like it should work like that everywhere it doesn't make sense that you lose a competition for some criteria that is not even related to the design or to the main principles or, uh, behind the project and that you put it in a cemetery and it dies 
Uh, I don't think that makes any sense. Uh, so Zaha has a lot of unbuilt projects. Like there is a very big discre discrepancy between the projects that were built and the unbuilt ones. It's, it's crazy the amount of unbuilt projects that they have. Uh, my favorite projects are actually part of the unbuilt uh, projects on Zaha. And uh, if there's something that I really do actively is to go back to old projects and to take something from them that I think that they should remain and they should come to real life. Um, I have personally a huge cemetery of projects and ideas, like huge, 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 so many ideas that uh, I just bury them under the ground because they didn't make the cut. And I think it's important to kind of bring some features into, into the present, of course. Like there's no reason to be, to cancel something forever just because it didn't go anywhere. And sometimes even clients, they, they like a project and then they kind of set step back whenever they see the, the budget and they were not prepared to pay for this much. So the project dies. How come would we have to kill the project as well, you know? So it's good that it kind of gets recycled, not recycled, but like reinterpreted into something else. It's more than fair, even for the person who had the idea. <laughs> Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. And I, I have a little bit of a broken timeline in my head right now, but did you have the luck and opportunity to work with Zaha for, or at least briefly see, meet her? So Zaha died on the same year that I was on DRL, like the, the year before I joined Zaha, she died. And oh. uh, it was a huge hit for me, like personally. Uh, quite honestly, I even felt like, I'm not going to apply then because I was very focused on getting into Zaha office with Zaha inside. <laughs> so uh, then I decided, okay, she died. I don't even want to be there. Uh, I'm sure that one of my goals was to learn from her, like how to behave, how to be, how to move. You know, I don't, I don't think that we would get along. Probably she wouldn't even like me to be honest, because I have a strong character, but it was more like, I want to see her from far and understand, um, to learn from her, like not from her work, but from the way she stands. Uh, basically. Yes. So, so I kind of lost my interest when she died. Uh, but then, obviously, I I thought, no, there's a lot more into that office than just the person behind, and uh, I applied anyway. But it was a huge hit for me. Uh, I never met her. I saw her once in Milan. Uh, she was presenting, and I never forgot that when I was like, I was looking from top, I was um, looking at her from the top balcony, and it was like an important moment for me. But uh, I just hear stories. Super cool stories. <laughs> so you had a hard personality, <laughs> super hard personality. Yeah, I've, I've I've heard some interviews with her. Um, I I was also I remember the day when I got the news. I was at the bus stop and I was reading the news, and um, for me it was personally, you know, um, also I I never had the aim to work at her office. Uh, but uh, I was very much uh, the experience we have had with with my dad that day in the Maxi Museum was uh, such a you know a moment that you remember just from experiencing a building from from the work of of her office. So you create this connection uh, with with this person, even if you never 
you never got to to meet that person yeah. and um it's it's funny what you said what what was your goal to get into the office because uh this was um so if we take zahadit i don't know how many employees has maybe 100 200 or maybe less i don't know but only this few people which are lucky enough and talented enough um, are the one that gonna see the inside of this office and how it's how it looks like there so what i was trying to do now with this podcast is broadcast a little bit of these pieces from the inside Mm -hmm. so people can get inspired or maybe uh, even if they don't have the opportunity get like motivated to be their own i don't know Zahadit or Mariana or whoever, so that they know at least in which direction, sort of a guidance, you know, like sparks. Because mm-hmm. of course, when you work there for for ever, for a longer time, you can see the process, learn. Because this is what impressed me personally. My first uh, professional experience was that that I, I uh, arrived to Germany after six months. I, I got my first job, and I was like, really, you know. I, I was in love with this place. I could see how a real architect was working, which for me was, you know, in Italy, we have a very complicated economical situation currently. So for us students, it was very even hard to figure out how to how to move uh, from the university to a job for a real job where you're not underpaid or uh, yeah. really maltreated. And, um, Same in Portugal, yeah. Exactly. And when I arrived here and I saw, I was like, this is so valuable to see what they're working, how they're mm-hmm. thinking. And, and you did it on the next level because I was always thinking I would like to go to work from for uh, OMA or Björk Ingels just to see how do they think there and how do they work there. I think this is the most the most valuable you yeah. can get there. But what is the, the the percentage of people from the AA now in your office and from the rest of the other university or from which university are they? It's, it's very high. <laughs> it's very <laughs> high. Uh, even the directors, they are ex-DRL. So Zaha also taught at the AA. Patrick teaches at the AA. So the directors that have been there for like 30 years or for 40 years, the same time that she has been, they are former AAs and... Uh, former DRLs, everyone kind of passed uh, through DRL at some point, which is so funny when you're working with people who did DRL 10 years ago and you're like, whoa, <laughs> that's a very old DRL. So, yeah, a lot of people did DRL. A lot of people do did the Vienna uh, school. Um, and then I think that it's becoming quite mixed. A lot, some people from Bartlett, but uh, a lot of people from Germany, a lot of people from Germany, a lot of people from Romania. Um, because a lot of from people Germany who, where I have no idea they all speak German they have like a, this group this German group you know okay I'm kind of thinking about because we are 400 people so I, I ah, don't okay. know like everyone but I'm thinking about what's the language that you hear the most so the language that you hear the most is German Romanian um, not, not a lot of British people uh, Spanish a bit but when I say Spanish like South Americans and and uh, some Spanish people as well from Spain. Um, what else? And I think it's also quite mixed. India, there's also a lot of people from India. It's quite mixed though. Uh, Asia as well, like China, some people from China. 
yeah, it's it's really really mixed. Of course, I think DRL is still the school that people have the most in common, even if even coming from different countries. I think DRL is the most common school, and DAA. Yeah. And how was um, how did you get the opportunity to teach uh, back to go back at the AA now as a teacher, and uh, how was the feeling after you were thinking you weren't even prepared to get into the school, yeah. now being someone that teaches people in that school? Uh, I think I to be very honest with you, it was kind of an arrogant move. It still is, to be fair. So when I did DRL, before I joined DRL and I saw the DRL presentations, I thought I'm a lot of things that they are saying I, are out of my depth. Like they're really far from what I think, and I need to kind of uh, catch the um, catch with them, like to keep up with them. There are other things that I think that they don't know and that they are not teaching, and they should be teaching. So I had this feeling of you need me, but I need you, but you also need me. And I kept this alive until even when I finished DRL. I thought I have a contribution for this place. I still think I have a bigger contribution than what I'm giving. It's really up to my director to take that or not. So I finished and I thought I, there is a big contribution to give to this course. I think I can really help. I think there are a lot of topics that are not being covered. Uh, I think that also, to be very fair, gender inequality at the DRL is huge is unexplainable and it's not because we need diversity for the sake of diversity but we do need diversity because some people relate more to other people you do need a gender uh, a male idea and a male point of view and a female point of view and a non-gender point of view you need diversity and uh, the rl is very male driven tr uh, still you can tell by the final uh, projects you can tell by a lot of things and i i was really confident that you need me you need me And I still think you need me. Uh, and, and then I was kind of pushing, like, get me to teach, get me to teach. I need to be teaching there. And they said, okay, maybe you can teach the software. I was like, cool, okay. I can start with the stuff, software. Let's see where this leads me after. And I am still a software teacher. Uh, I think that maybe one day they will actually get me for something else. But, um, well, I've been teaching the software for four years and I get involved with the students and the students' project, which is good. I tell them my input on the project, which is usually beneficial. And, um, yeah, that's why I've been teaching at the AA. Let's see if they take me on board for something more interesting than the software. <laughs> I can say that my impression is that you say uh, it was a little bit, uh, how did you say your move Arrogant. was? <laughs> arrogant i don't think you're arrogant i uh, from from the the our conversation so far i have the impression you have this very strong character for sure um but you are not arrogant you put your powerful character and service of your ideas and uh like you sort of have the energy to put so to say your your body for your ideas this is what i feel because yeah. um I, i was also impressed uh, maybe in the futurely promotion there was somewhere mentioned that your uh, designer zaha did and that your teacher at the aa or professor at the aa i don't know i'm sorry if i have said the wrong word um yeah. but i was also impressed like okay uh 
I'm I'm used to deal with, you know, when I was in Rome with my professors would cover also some very important roles. Like I had a professor who was the uh, basically the main architect of the Vatican City and, and they would have these roles and through this role feel very important. And you have important uh, an important role, but still you, you also get part in uh, projects like Futurely, which is, I guess, from what I know, more accessible for more people mm -hmm. than the AA. So for me, it was very also, this was another, you know, you, what really uh, made me curious to know you and to have the opportunity to talk to you it was not that much that you work at Zaha did, but all this idea that I got from you because it was so multi-diverse and was very, <laughs> <laughs> very interesting. Um. And um, I, I forgot to ask you, when did you move to England and still now, um, was there any cultural shock you experienced? Because a part of being a designer, an architect, you're always a person. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think to be very practical, very practical, like the... The cost of living is so much higher. It's a, I think it, it's a real shock. Uh, so there's no very big cultural shock uh, in any other subject. I think that money-wise and the cost of everything, it is a shock. And you, sh you struggle for very long until you learn how to um, create, to have your own economics uh, uh, and to have your savings. I think you learn how to save very late in London. Like, I... Especially, I don't know, like five years or four years after living in London, I learned how to save money. It's really hard and it's very unexpected. Everything is unexpectedly high priced. Uh, even the coffee is an unexpectedly high priced. So that was my first very big shock was uh, money-wise. And, and like, to be honest, sometimes I couldn't, Like my parents were giving me money. I was not asking for more money because I was a student, right? But I remember I never told them that I had two pounds for two weeks and to live with two pounds. It's insane. Like I was having this noodle, instant noodle for dinner <laughs> every day because it was like 90p or I was buying Indian food from the supermarket already done because it was like one pound. I think that was the, the biggest shock in the beginning. Uh, and even like when you join the office, your salary is not high or medium. It's actually low. So um, my salary was a low sal salary for very long. And I was also like still living with a very low uh, sources. Like I, I was, I still cook my lunch and my dinner every Sunday. So I don't have to eat out. Um, so yeah, I think that was the biggest shock to be very fair. The rest is fine. The rest is okay. Is, is there a moment in the career at Zahadid Architects where your value, it's suddenly higher than the value that being at the office is there and they pay you higher? I always wonder that. <laughs> that could be an email from me to the HR. Hi, is there a moment in life where I'm going to be like valid, over, overvalued in money? <laughs> um, I heard that when you get to lead, you are more comfortable. Hmm. 
because you know i when i wanted to join one of these offices uh, i was still fresh and maybe almost finishing university and um i think now my life changed uh, diff- too much to you know say okay i'm going to now accept to because whether you like it or not i guess that's everywhere i, I whether it's oma or another office um the value that they the office gives you just for have worked there it sort of in my opinion yeah. maybe empowers them to tell you okay you're working here in the leading office in the world so you have to accept a little bit yeah. lower pay and um i don't know if that's fair because also you know um you have spent so much money on aa and you have skills which basically not not a lot of people have and um that's yeah. that sounds to me a little um yeah i i don't agree with it if i if i ever had the power to to lead an office i would rather uh lower slow, slightly my earnings to 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 make uh to make yeah. people as happy as possible and through teaching it's, it's a fragile subject yes i'm not gonna ask you because i'm go- i'm giving my opinions on this subject because you work for the firm so i don't want to, i don't want to uh, push no, 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 no. you have a strong character before you start talking, i know don't. but it's fine no, but you can ask i all for example i, I always ask for a raise on uh, any review that i have i have we have annual re- uh, reviews some yeah. people ask for raises some people don't ask for raises i think that you have to ask for raises there's no reason for any director on any office in the world to raise you without you asking why would they give you money if you don't ask like to be very fair but that's just my opinion some people don't really ask and they get the raise anyway i think that you should always ask always ask your annual review shouldn't be the most comfortable flower moment in your life no that's the tough moment it's the moment that you say hey okay this was fun but okay let's i need this and i want this number uh that's just my personal opinion i think people have very different opinions about this i I like the way you think i agree with you (laughs) um and uh teaching teaching uh you teach uh, day and then you teach another workshops uh although you're teaching you say you you said it like it's funny also because you said you were weak at softwares when you got into the a and now you teach a software yeah. um but is right. this <laughs> yes you you've uh, that shows how how tough you are i think and i'm saying this really out of uh I, I today is the first day I got to talk to you, so I wouldn't have any reason to to say it. But yeah. to me, it shows a lot of toughness because your weak, weak weak points now are strong points. Um, although although you're teaching just the software, which is also very complex software, um, is the whole process and the ideas that you see from the students keeps you also a lot of uh, keeps you fresh into then of your course. personal personal. Yes. Because I think when you're teaching somebody, there I have this, you know, students. I don't know what kind of you still teach at the A. Some students that have a master degree, I guess, in architecture, but is oh, they have a little bit more purity, like uh, braveness, or you know, they're for really sure. yeah, for sure. So how I'm do go- that? I'm gonna be honest. Look? I obviously. I think that what drives me to teach is one, I feel the responsibility of giving my knowledge away. 
to, of course, the money that comes with teaching and the experience that you have should be monetized. And then three, definitely the biggest reward is to see what you interpret from what I told you. And, and, and that gives me like my creativity and my brain very much alive. I don't think students are even aware because they haven't, they cannot do exactly like you did. So they feel that they kind of failed, but it's the exact opposite. Like what they are giving me is way better than what I did in my head. Right. So it gives me like a lot of new ideas, new ways of thinking things. So that's another way of reason why I want to be attached to the AI so much because it really keeps my brain so busy and so entertained. It's some something completely different. Uh, I even I lose track of time when I'm when I'm teaching usually because you're like transported to another dimension, some some dimension that someone created. So that's also one of the reasons why I like to teach. And how do you balance uh, work and teaching? What is the amount of time that one and the other, how do you put them together? Yeah. I think that's really crazy. That's the only thing that I would say that it's a bit crazy in my life right now is how I'm managing this. And that's also why I'm a bit different from the traditional employee or I'm a bit different from the traditional person who teaches workshops lives, right? Because I do both. And um, I, I've been learning a lot of lessons from this in the last year. I usually t like to take myself to the extreme to see how far I can go. And when I see that I'm starting to fail, I, I go back. Right. So last year I was doing my office work. I'm, I, of course, I work a lot for the office and I, I always give my best or most of the times I try to give my best. And then I was teaching live. I was doing a competition with friends and I was feeding my Instagram with new content for design. So it was a lot. And when I reached this moment, I was kind of doing office. At lunchtime, I was doing preparing classes for the live. I would turn off my computer at 8 p.m. and turn on my new Maya file for other classes that I, for the competition that I was doing. So I was multitasking like three projects in a day. I was juggling three projects uh, every day. And that kind of, I think that was the, the extreme. And then I saw me um, kind of giving less to the office. And that was very scary because my contract is for, with the office. So I quite honestly saw me kind of failing to the office and putting office as plan B and giving my average just what they asked me so I could survive on the other fields. So I kind of st stood a little bit back and said, okay, I can only do one live workshop and office at the same time. I cannot be involved on anything else. So right now I'm kind of juggling that. I'm teaching live, doing uh, DAA, which is already a lot, and uh, doing office. Um, so, and it's crazy, to be honest. I think I cannot keep this rhythm forever. To be fair, sometimes I really think like, okay, this has a, this will have a limit as well. There's no way and I can uh, keep this rhythm. And you have to squeeze in uh, some personal life, I guess, because you said yeah. also you have a relationship. I don't know if yes. you're a lot. A lot of people have in the architectural field uh, have a. Um, a bad social life, a non-existent no, social life. No, we have a partner which is also an architect, so they can be all both yeah. like focus on 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 the same subject. This is mm -hmm. um, this is the thing. And is there any like routine you have to I don't know sport or something to to keep yourself power powered up, pumped up? Yeah. 
but do you practice yeah for sure i'm i i really i really really believe in routines i think routines are really powerful they sound monotonous they sound boring i think routines are disciplined for me is like number one priority is to have discipline and to have a routine uh it sounds boring but i think it's really what gets you going i have things well planned well organized of course i have space for surprises and for i don't know something else that comes but For me, it's important to include on my routine, work for office, work for something else than office, work out, have my boyfriend and my family. Uh, and this is my daily routine. I'm very lucky that I have a very, very tolerant boyfriend. He's not an architect, but he is like a special kind of person. I'm very lucky to have him and to kind of like right now <laughs> I am like closed in the living room and he's outside for the last two hours. <laughs> so he wouldn't make any noise. <laughs> And he and he's very tolerant, you know. <laughs> uh, so I'm very lucky for that. Not everyone is is lucky enough to find someone like that. Um, but yeah, working out is also something that for me is major. I have like a small gym at home. I I I, I do a lot of heavy lifting. Uh, working out for me is super important. Super important. Uh, so yeah, for me, routines is number one recipe for success. That's um, I have to work on that lately because I was used to work out more before the pandemics and then I kind of like dropped it. But I have I'm going yeah. going back in the path. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think we have covered a lot. I, I don't want to keep you away for for you from your boyfriend and keep him away from <laughs> from any further on. Uh, we can conclude with uh, I, I am trying to conclude the interviews now with something new. So I ask everybody if you have something uh, for your personal that's very inspirational, uh, like a movie, a book, a song, or maybe even a place where you go to or where you love to go or something that you enjoy. Is there something like that that you keep it in your heart? Oh, that's a hard one. Um This might sound very dry, but I'm not, I don't really um, see, um, how can I say this without being too dry? I don't see a very big need for people to seek for inspiration. Um, I think that usually what you see that looks so inspiring actually came from a lot of work and a lot of hours and more perspiration and transpiration than actually inspiration. Um, so I don't look for any book or a place to get inspired. Usually my best work comes from a lot of hours of insisting uh, on something. So I would say non-inspiration is the best kind of inspiration. <laughs> Discipline. <laughs> Discipline. Perfect. I like I like your answer because every guest needs to be themselves and needs to yeah. give their own their, their own message. So I, I like this <laughs> message. So uh, be, before we conclude, really, you can uh, say where people can can find you on online or uh, where can they find more about you, and um, so that they can now see <laughs> the the face of Mariana. <laughs> So I am on Instagram, uh, it's at Mariana Cabugaira, and um, that's the only place where I'm at. I don't have Facebook, so that's it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Instagram. we're going to... 
we're gonna put a link in the in the description of the podcast so thank you mariana it was very nice talking thank you to so you much. and yeah really nice yeah it went super fast i told you <laughs> yeah you're right <laughs> so have a good evening and i uh, hope to talk to you soon you too bye 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 Just like that. Hey guys, thank you very much for listening to this episode. And before we go, I want to remind you that if you want to support this podcast and our show, you can do it by just subscribing to our monthly newsletter where you're going to receive the best of every month. And you can follow our social media channels, which are Instagram at TCA Podcast and LinkedIn, the Creative Insider page. Thank you very much and have a good week. Like that.